Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Dear Brian, nothing personal word of the day. It is March 22nd, 2022. It's a Tuesday, and the word of the day is Dear Brian. I wanted to go with Dear John, like Dear John Doe, or Dear Jane. I don't think that's a thing anymore where people get Dear Jane letters. No one writes letters anymore. People write emails, they do texts, they do tweets. But in Major League Baseball, the commissioner and the commissioner's office has always been into letters. But the way it works when you get a letter from the commissioner, when you are being fined, or your organization is in trouble, or when you're losing draft picks, or when there's an issue, a dispute, you don't just wake up one day, go into the office with your suit and your tie, and you go see your assistant, Mail call, and then Radar walks in or Klinger and drops the mail off, and you see an envelope with Commissioner's Office of Major League Baseball. And you open the letter, and you read it, and you say, wow, I had no idea I was going to be contacted about this. What a total surprise. The way it works is that you get a phone call, and the phone call comes from when Bud Selig was commissioner, it would come from Rob Manford. Now that Rob Manford's commissioner, it comes from Dan Hallam. And the phone call comes to you and says, listen, we got a situation involving your debt. We have a situation involving your use of revenue sharing. We have a situation involving a player transaction that you did that is going to be grieved by the players union. We have a situation involving a TV deal and the valuation of your TV deal for purposes of calculating revenue sharing. Let's discuss it. We discuss it, and then the conversation ends with, we're going to have to send you a letter, but we'll let you know what the letter says in advance. You're going to see the letter, and then you're going to get the letter because that letter becomes an official letter. One of the great letters we got was the letter saying that there was a problem with the way the Marlins were spending revenue sharing, not the current grievance that's going on against Jeter's Marlins. This was another grievance against our Marlins, along with several other teams, that we were not using revenue sharing dollars to improve the major league product, and that the union was filing a grievance, and that the union was upset where the Marlins payroll was, as well as the Rays and the Pirates and and various other teams. And we had phone calls, not a letter, phone calls with the commissioner's office, and it was decided that we would sign Josh Johnson to a long-term deal. You're welcome, Josh. And two, there would be a letter sent to the Marlins that would basically slap us on the wrist for having a low payroll. 
we would then agree to raise the payroll, even though we had already pre-agreed to sign Josh Johnson. And we were doing it because we needed help from the commissioner's office when it had to do with other revenue sharing issues, because revenue sharing was such an important part of our annual budget, that we cut a deal with baseball that you can hang us out to dry you can get a letter written to us that will go public that the Marlins payroll is too low and we've got to sign players and then we're going to sign Josh Johnson and we'll be the face of the your payroll's too low, you're violating terms of the collective bargaining agreement because then it gets rid of the problem that baseball had with the union regarding other teams. Why at the time did the Marlins agree to be slapped on the wrist in that way? because we had bigger fish to fry with baseball. We wanted to get discretionary, commissioner's discretionary income from baseball. That's a pot of money that the commissioner literally gives to teams at his own discretion and teams apply for it. It's given in a very non-scientific way based on favors, based on votes that the commissioner wants you to give. There's so much going on when you run a team as with any business, that you are juggling plates, you're spinning bowls on sticks that are hanging from the top of your nose and the top of your head, and you're deciding when it's worth it to give in one place because you're getting someplace else. Don't you all do that anyway in your everyday life? Don't you all decide when you're giving up the fight or when, as we like to say on Nothing Personal, the juice isn't worth the squeeze anymore? That is what happens. So now, fast forward to today, and a big news comes out. Major, the New York Yankees have to release a letter from the commissioner's office to Brian Cashman as it relates to the sign-stealing scandal of 2017 when the Astros were sullied for tapping and hitting garbage cans and stealing signs and doing what I told you at the time and what I tell you today is what every team was doing, using their digital power, using their brain power to try to steal signs and gain an advantage. But the Astros both went too far and got caught, a combination of which leads to the downfall and sort of the end of the public love toward the Astros, the staining of their championship. But after that happened, back in 2017, there was a lawsuit that came out. And believe it or not, it was a lawsuit against DraftKings because people wanted their money back who bet on teams playing the Astros. So in addition to suing the DraftKings, they also sued the Astros, Major League Baseball. And as part of that lawsuit there came to light the existence of a letter that was written from baseball to the Yankees, specifically Brian Cashman, that in theory, possibly, may have implicated the Yankees as being a violator of the rules against sign-stilling and using anything digital to steal signs. And I told you either on HQ, was this before Nothing Personal, Coca? I think it was during Nothing Personal, but who can remember? We're at episode 560, and I really don't remember. But the Yankees 
made an appeal to the court, not as a party to the lawsuit, that they did not want a letter written to them by baseball to be part of discovery in this lawsuit that did not even involve the Yankees. And it was ruled after many back and forths in many years yesterday the judge at the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the second highest court in the land, right below the Supreme Court, the judge ruled that the letter written by baseball to the Yankees should be made public. The Yankees have been fighting this for years, and we speculated why. Why don't the Yankees want this letter out there? The president of the Yankees, Randy Levine, has been clear from the beginning that the reason he doesn't want the letter out there is that he believes that people will see this letter and then believe that they were part of sign stealing, that they got in trouble for sign stealing, and that they will then be sullied. Of course, on Nothing Personal, we told you the Yankees are one of the most egregious, along with 29 other teams, get it? the most egregious tied with the other 29 teams for stealing signs and trying to steal signs and using everything in their quiver to steal those signs. But for whatever reason, the Yankees were taking a stand. They found a hill and they said, we're going to die on this hill and we're going to take this all the way to the top. So the judge came out yesterday and said something that should make everyone in baseball realize that, hey, it's just baseball. We used to think, and I was a major, major part of this, that we lived on the top of a pyramid. We were captains of industry. We were above the law. And I don't mean the law, I don't mean the law as it relates to committing physical crimes, but we are above the law when it comes to not just our antitrust exemption, but we're basically untouchable. We've got Washington, D.C. sewn up. We've got local politicians sewn up. Everyone appreciates our role in society, and we are national pastime. Just we, we really drank the Kool-Aid as, as people in charge of baseball. So the judge comes out yesterday and says, the Yankees argue that the harm from the unsealing of the Yankees' letter will arise because its content would be distorted to falsely and unfairly generate the confusing scenario. Tell me if you're confused right now, because this is what the Yankees argued, that you, the fan, would be very confused by reading this letter. That contained in this letter would somehow be words that would make you think that the Yankees violated MLB's sign-stealing rules, when in fact, Randy Levine claimed, the Yankees did not. So the Yankees, in addition to thinking that they live on a perch, as we all do, they think the rest of you are just stupid, and that you'll see this letter, and you'll be totally confused by it, you won't understand the sentence construction, and you'll think that the words, that can't be English because I have no reading comprehension ability, but wow, the Yankees got a letter from Rod Manford or from Dan Hallam. That must mean it was from Rod Manford. It must mean that they're guilty. And of course, once you are guilty in the court of public opinion, it does not matter what other court you get yourself into and whether or not that court adjudicates you as innocent because you've already been made guilty. 
That's the whole point of why people sue for defamation, why people sue for libel and slander, because once something is written, then that's it. The correction appears on page 20, the claim and the accusation is on page one. But the judge said that this argument that the Yankees are making, that this letter will confuse people into thinking that they were violating the sign-stealing rules of baseball, this argument, the judge said, is ridiculous. It carries no weight, he said. In fact, he said, the disclosure of this document will allow the public to independently assess MLB's conclusion regarding the investigation. And once the letter's public, then the Yankees, Major League Baseball, can spin the contents of the letter however they want, and the public can decide whether the Yankees are trying to spin it with the knowledge of what's actually inside the letter. Absolutely fascinating. Where a court is saying, hey, we believe it's in the public interest for the public to have as much information as possible. And now we seal documents all the time as it relates to national security, as it relates to the killing of presidents. But to seal documents about stealing signs while baseball may think it's the end of the world and this puts the G in gravitas. The court said, you know what? Unseal it. Why have the Yankees been so vociferous in their objection of having this letter be seen while at the same time saying the letter doesn't say they violated the sign-stealing rules? Well, the Yankees would have you know that it's a tiny little legal principle that the discovery asked of the plaintiffs in this case should not have included anything Yankees-related because the Yankees are not party to the case, and the discovery request was too broad. In a lawsuit, discovery is when you go through people's emails and letters, you have depositions, you get documents, and you're trying to find out what is happening in a particular situation to prove your accusations, to prove to a judge that there's enough to move forward and then to prevail in a case. Companies are historically against wide scopes of discovery. They claim it's because there's 150 million emails, we'd have to go through them all, it's totally impossible, then we'll have to deliver them. The old days, and there was just a movie about this, Matt, God dang it, there was a movie, oh, I just watched it, uh, where there was a, it was a TV series with Peter Skazgard, who was married to Maggie Gyllenhaal, who was, oh, dope sick, yes! That was without your help. That's the brain working in the morning. Where in the old days, discovery was done by literally having trucks drop off huge file cabinets with millions of pages. And when you had very, very wealthy defendants in a case, they would try to inundate plaintiffs with discovery, hoping that the plaintiffs would have to spend so much money to go through to find the one needle in a haystack that it would just be impossible and that they would then want to settle, and then the defendant would not have to in any way tell you, the plaintiff or the world, all the things they had done wrong, violated the law in various ways, etc. When 20 years ago, Jeffrey Loria was trying to buy a team and I was helping him, there was actually a document room where when we were doing, due, they call it a due diligence room back in those days, 
where we went to a train station in Montreal where there were boxes of documents. And if you want to buy a team, hey, you have to sign a document, a purchase agreement saying that you are buying the team as is, that you've gotten access to every single piece of paper, you read every single piece of paper or not, not, not our problem if we're the seller, and that you have agreed that there's nothing in there that will in any way make you say, hey, that's not what I was trying to buy. So we would go to Montreal and spend days and weeks and months in a room going through hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper. Do you know what discovery rooms are now and document diligence rooms? They're electronic. You no longer go into a room that is floor to ceiling with file cabinets. When the Marlins were sold in 2017, we would grant access to bidders to a quote, electronic diligence room where there are documents that have been uploaded that people can then go through on your computer. Do you know when you are asked for discovery and judges take this into account these days, when you're asked for discovery, there's now electronic discovery with search terms. So you don't give over your entire email server to a plaintiff. There are certain search words that are agreed upon by both sides where the judge agrees that those will be the search terms used. So let's say in this case, there would be documents that would say sign stealing. That would be relevant to sign-stealing scandals. So the Yankees are trying to limit scope of discovery by saying this letter was not part of what should have been turned over to the plaintiffs. Judges these days are more apt to allow more versus less because there is no built-in inherent advantage for rich defense corporations, rich corporations rich defendants, rich individuals. Because in our legal system, you don't want to make it so that rich people can stop poor people from getting justice. That's the theory. And with the advances in technology, that theory is getting closer to reality. And so the judge in this case was saying, this isn't beyond the scope. We've already agreed. And by the way, there's no reason this letter should be public, should not be public. So the Yankees now have 14 days to appeal this decision. And here's what's going on inside the brain trust of the Yankees. We're in for a penny, we're in for a pound. We've been fighting the release of this letter while saying there's nothing incriminating in this letter. And I don't mean actually violating the criminal code. I mean, nothing incriminating about our involvement in sign stealing, even though in that letter, will certainly be the only reason the commissioner writes a letter to Brian Cashman is not an update letter. Update letters would go to the president or the owner. When you write a letter to the GM, it's to alert that GM that they are aware of certain things going on with the Yankees and you better get your field people to stop. You better get your analytics department to stop. You better get your digital video people to stop because we know, and we've heard, and we've investigated. So fair warning. And that letter's only sent after speaking to Hal Steinbrenner and Randy Levine and saying, hey, we're sending you this letter, so you, you better stop. So the Yankees are sitting there saying, we got 14 days right now. 
We have to decide, should we appeal this? Should we go all the way to the Supreme Court? Should we go to that conservative court? And should we say, hey, we're the Yankees. We represent big business, just like conservatives. We want to make sure that big business is protected from ever having to reveal anything. We may get a very receptive court. Hmm. So they call up baseball because they're certainly not going to continue this appeal without speaking to Major League Baseball first. Rob Manford and attorney, Dan Hale and both attorneys, are going to say to the Yankees, that's enough now. All the names in the letter will be redacted. The letter and its contents are far less worrisome than what people are speculating given how much you're fighting to not have the letter released. Now, I understand why we're doing this fight because it's for the next lawsuit. It's for the next time, but now it's time. It's enough. Let my letter go. It's almost Passover. Pharaoh, Egypt, way down and uh, I'm just getting ready for the Seder. So wait to see. The Yankees will not appeal the Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruling. This letter will come out. There will be more discussions about what's in it, more speculation. And just know it has zero impact in how the Yankees are doing business how the Astros are doing business, or any of the other teams in Major League Baseball. This was a legal fight that had far more to do with not what was in the letter, but what releasing the letter represented. Wait to see. Did you read what Kenley Kenley Jansen said yesterday? God, that could have been a way better transition, right? All right, let me do that again. Okay, 4869. That letter had far more to do about what is contained beyond the scope of that lawsuit and for the next time than what it actually had to do with what's inside the letter that the Yankees are trying to hide. So big market teams, large revenue teams like the Yankees, like the Dodgers, they spend as much time trying to figure out how to share less revenue with teams, how to hide revenue, how to work with Major League Baseball in order to protect their interests as they do trying to win World Series. It may sound incredibly cynical, but it's incredibly true. The business of baseball takes up a lot of time, not just for all 30 teams, but really at the edges When you're a bottom team or a top team, when you're in the middle, you're just sort of flowing along, right? It's people who like the merry-go-round. They're just going around and around, and they're good with where they are. They don't have too many fights with the low-revenue teams or the high-revenue teams. They're just sort of existing. They're watching their assets appreciate. They're winning 80 games, sometimes 88 games. On a good season, you can win 94 games. On a bad season, you can win 72 games. But they're pretty much in the middle. The teams on the extreme are always, always fighting with teams on the other extreme and fighting with central baseball, trying to make sure their interests are being represented and that they will not have to either give more revenue to teams on the bottom or that they will get more revenue from teams on the top. That sort of stuff is always going on. This last collective bargaining agreement 
included what's called the Steve Cohn tax. Ironically, it could have been called the Mark Walters tax. It could have been called the Los Angeles Dodgers New York Mets tax. What it really is called by those in baseball is the fourth tier tax. The fourth tier didn't exist in the last CBA. It is teams who go above the CBT by 60 million or more dollars are going to pay an 80% tax. They're going to lose draft picks. And it will be so prohibitive that teams won't want to do it. That was the theory of why baseball wanted this fourth tier. It was the way they got the lower revenue teams to agree to the increase in the first tier of 230 million, which really hurts the small markets more than having the fourth tier up at 290 helps them, which is why I wouldn't have voted for the deal. But wouldn't you know it this year, the Dodgers are paying attention to whether or not they're gonna go over 290 million in payroll. The Dodgers have had a closer since they signed him out of Curacao back when he was like 16, Kenley Jansen. And he just signed a one-year $16 million deal with the Atlanta Braves. So the Braves had Freddie Freeman, who's now on the Dodgers. The Dodgers had Kenley Jansen, who's now on the Braves. We tried to sign Kenley Jansen when he was a free agent in 2000, the offseason of 2016. We made offers to Aroldis Chapman and to Kenley Jansen. And we gave them each four-year offers. And we discovered that Chapman didn't want to leave the Yankees no matter what, even if we offered more money. And we offered him a chance to live at home in Florida. And that Jansen, because of family, did not want to leave the West Coast. It really had nothing to do with competitiveness because at the end of the day, we just forced the Dodgers and the Yankees to pay more than they wanted for their closers, which made me happy, actually, as a sort of second prize to getting the closer we wanted. And the other thing I was trying to do back then was to change the narrative of my inability to find good closers on a long-term basis. While it would have been an overpay to each of them, the last big closer we signed was Heath Bell, who stunk. So I was trying to get people to forget about that and bring in one of the top two closers as a way to maybe make our pitching staff better and with Stanton, Yelich, and Ozuna get to the playoffs and maybe win. Who knows? But those were, those were the thoughts. But Jansen stayed with the Dodgers. So Jansen's deal is over because it was 17, 18, 19, 20. I guess he must have gotten, did we offer him a five-year deal, Coca? I thought we only offered four. Maybe we offered him five? I don't, God, I'd have to go back and look at my notes. But it doesn't matter. What does matter is that Kenley Jansen was a free agent and the Dodgers wanted him back. He wanted to stay in Los Angeles, but the Los Angeles Dodgers said to Kenley, we can't re-sign you right now. You have to be patient. It was five. Then we offered Chapman. Thank you very much. It was five. We offered five for both um, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Was this the off season of 16? Or was it the off-season after 16? Did he sign it after the 16 season, Coca? Isn't it so bad to when, you're, when you were in the game so long, your memory just, it was December of 16. All right, let me bring you quickly back to what was going on there. After Jose Fernandez died in September of 16, 
we said to Jeffrey that our competitive window is now closed and we should not re-sign Martin Prado. We got to think about moving Ozuna and Stanton because Ozuna was going to get expensive. We had signed Stanton a few years early and he had a no trade clause, but we, we had a problem with pitching. As I recall that offseason, we made long-term offers, five-year deals to Chapman and to Jansen. We signed Edinson Volquez, I believe, to pitch for us in 17 as a way to possibly replace Jose, even though he won't be nearly as good. But then you keep Stanton, Yelich, and Ozuna, and we go for it in 17. But Chapman and Jansen turned us down, both re-signed with the Yankees and Dodgers, respectively. And Stanton ended up winning the MVP in 17, but we still couldn't win 81 games. And that's when Jeffrey said, sell the team during that season, the beginning of that season, whenever he said it, and then the team got sold. I don't know why that just came into my mind. Oh, because we're talking about Kenley Jansen. So the Dodgers said, we can't re-sign you right now because if we do, there is a risk that we will be above $290 million. And we don't want to do that. And the whole risk is because of Trevor Bauer. Trevor Bauer being on administrative leave has made it so they do not know how much money they're going to have to pay Trevor Bauer and how much of that money will count towards CBT and then what their CBT level will be. Because if you've got Kenley Jansen and you've got Trevor Bauer and you're assuming that you need Trevor Bauer suspended for 80 games, so instead of a $20 million, a $40 million hit on his CBT, it's only $20 million because he's lost $20 million because he was suspended for half the year. What if Trevor Bauer gets suspended for only one month of the year? What if Trevor Bauer doesn't get suspended at all? Now, the Dodgers may release him. He may not pitch another game for the Dodgers. I have a wait to see pending that he will be suspended, and he will be suspended. But the Dodgers did the math. They called Kenley and said, we're not ready to sign you yet, but we want you back. We need you to hang in there. We'll watch you throw on the side, get yourself ready, because... Bauer is on administrative leave until April 16th. We've spoken to baseball. There is going to be some resolution soon after. And the minute we know for sure, that will dictate how we can structure our contract with you. Meanwhile, Jansen was saying, hmm, what happens if I get hurt in a, in a bullpen while I'm getting ready for the season? What happens if I trip over a suitcase carrying it up and down the floor, the stairs? What if I fall in a hole while chasing my child around the lawn? Hey, agent, do me a favor. Do we have anything else out there? Because I'm a free agent. The Braves say, hey, we'll give you one year because I think that'd be good. We can combine you with Will Smith. We can shore up the bullpen. We can make the Dodgers weaker by making us stronger. There's a chance we'll face them again in the playoffs because we face them every year. We exchanged Freeman for Olsen. We gave Freeman to the Dodgers, made them better. Yeah, you know what? We'll do a one-year deal for you, and we'll give you $16 million. Now, Kenley Jansen signed a deal where his AAV was, it was in that range, right? 
16, 17 million is what he'd been making. There is no way that Kenley Jansen is worth that amount anymore. You saw the struggles he had two years ago, better at the end of last year. He actually, when the Dodgers won their World Series in 20, he wasn't even the closer anymore. They let their starter Urias close the deciding game. But Jensen was okay last year. So the Braves say one year, 16. He calls up the Dodgers and says, this is it, I'm about to sign with the Braves. This is your last chance. Will you sign us? Andrew Friedman, the president of baseball operations, goes to Stan Kasten, his president and CEO, and says, we're going to lose Kenley over the Bauer situation. And guess what? They did. And it made everyone in baseball incredibly happy. For the first time in as long as I can remember, the Los Angeles Dodgers couldn't sign a player because of money. How great is that? That means that the collective bargaining agreement is working exactly as the owners wanted it, not the players. The players wanted the CBT as high as possible so that the teams at the top would keep signing and keep signing. They put this fourth tier in they agreed to it in order to get higher minimum salaries, in order to get the lower level of the CBT moved up in a percentage basis that had never been done before. But now the teams who are always counted on by the players to bail out the players union and increase their payroll, now they turn down a player? You don't think Rob Manford and the owners are smiling with what the Dodgers just had to do? giving themselves high fives? Hell yes, they are. <clears throat> I love it. Can I tell you what happened before this show? Coke and I had, Coke can get grumpy. When we, we generally tape at the same time every morning and we're live to tape, which means we don't edit it. You get us for 45 minutes. But sometimes and on a day I'm not running and I'm still sore from a weekend run or I just happen to get going or I want to get going or I've got thoughts in my head I want to say or I want more time to do the pre-show preparation with Coke on the phone, I'll text him and say, if you're ready, let's get in the Zoom room and let's start our pre-show meeting. And I know within 30 seconds what kind of mood Coke is in because he doesn't hide it very well. And he was incredibly grumpy this morning, incredibly tired. And he was very unhappy with the show. We had a few topics in there that he didn't want us to talk about because he didn't think they were NPDS worthy. And I was not married to the topics because we always cut out topics. And so Coca, <laughs> I, whatever. Are you all right, Matt? He's just having a bad day. Okay. Thank you for... Did we go to break yet, by the way? I just got totally distracted. Let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Phoenix Rising and Zion Williamson. We'll be right back. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. I watched a documentary about Evan Rachel Wood that we have to talk about. It's called Phoenix Rising. 
Evan Rachel Wood is an actress who was in a great movie with Holly Hunter called 13. She was in a great movie with Jim Sturgis that I loved called Across the Universe. She is still working. She became widely known for her relationship with Marilyn Manson, that shock rocker, the guy who wears makeup on his face. People may not know Marilyn Manson anymore. His real name is Brian Werner. I had no idea, because I must live under a rock, that Evan Rachel Wood has been alleging abuse against Marilyn Manson for years, that she was in an abusive relationship that she could not get out of. Evan Rachel Wood made a documentary and allowed cameras to see her and interview her in some of the most vulnerable, sad moments of her path to redemption, her path to healing. You see, she's been a huge advocate, both in Washington, nationally, locally, trying to get laws passed that help victims of domestic abuse and sexual abuse, that normalize the ability for women to discuss it without having it hamper their careers, without have them be slut-shamed or victim-shamed, trying to draw attention not just to what Marilyn Manson did to her, but what so many men do to women who are not famous, who are not actors or musicians. So I'm watching this two-part documentary called Phoenix Rising. I think it's on HBO. And all I could think of is that I'm watching Evan Rachel Wood in movies and I'm thinking she has it all. Even though I've been on the other side of the curtain where I know that people's public perception is not based on reality. I'm made aware that <laughs> the people think they know you because they see you on TV or listen to you on a show or watch you fail or succeed or you interact with them behind a computer screen, but in fact, they don't know you at all. You try to show your vulnerabilities in order for people to get some insight into the fact that you're just a person. And no matter how famous or how rich you are or how well-known you are, you are subject to the up and downs, the ups and the downs of life. You're subject to emotional distress to depression, to anxiety, to stress. Rich people have no problems. They have no stress. And this is not me saying that we should feel sorry for people because of the position they're in, or we shouldn't feel sorry for people because of the position they're in. This is me asking why we only pay attention to certain stories until we learn more about them and then say, wow, if I had only known that then. But I could have known this about Evan Rachel Wood if I had taken the time to broaden my investment, my investigative horizons, if I had read articles, if I hadn't been so focused on things I was doing, so wrapped up in my own life. But I took the three hours to watch this documentary and I have two things. 
One, Evan Rachel Wood, on the small chance that you're watching nothing personal, I'm sorry. Not on behalf of anyone but me. I'm sorry that I just watched you in a movie as a teenager get taken advantage of. I'm sorry that I didn't pay attention to the fact that you were made out to be an adult and that you were put in this light as this character who was an adult when you were in fact a child. I'm sorry that I clicked and read articles that made you out to be not the victim, but the perpetrator. And I hope that you make it through the rain. I hope that you take this documentary, I take what you're doing, and take all of the activism that you are now out in front of, and that you are an example to women, to men, and that the behavior stops. Maybe it's something that can never stop, but just on the hunch that it can. Watch Phoenix Rising and see if you know anyone in your life, not who's famous, but in your circle, who could be a victim like this, who could be hiding it, and ask yourself, is there anything you can do? The answer is gonna be yes. Nothing personal pick of the day. We had the Mavs by three and a half over the T-Wolves. The Mavs ended up, the closing line was minus one and the Mavs won by two, which means if you bet it at the end, you win. If you bet it when I gave the pick, we lost. We're 32 and 25. The Golden State Warriors have a game tonight. They're playing the Orlando Magic. I'm super excited about that because the Golden State Warriors have been struggling recently. They've lost a couple in a row. For some reason, there's, there's, just, there's something missing from that team, except they're really good. And they're only giving eight to the Orlando Magic. Now, granted, they're on the road, but the Warriors are fine on the road. They're above 500 on the road. The Warriors are going to crush the Magic. 32-25, and 25, take the Warriors. All right, Zion. How come back on December 14th, two months ago, three months ago, I told all of you in a way to see that Zion Williamson was done for the year, that he was not going to play, not just because he had a hurt foot, but because he weighed about 10 score, totally out of shape. The Pelicans traded for CJ McCollum. They're trying to make a run, but the Pelicans had this view of themselves when they drafted Zion Williamson over John Morant, which everyone would have done at the time, that they were getting a Duke player. Yes, Bomani, there's actually a black player who played at Duke. And the Pelicans were going to ride him to Rookie of the Year on to championship glory. Meanwhile, he's been an unmitigated, complete disaster. Yesterday, the Pelicans announced that Zion Williamson is improving, but he's done for the year. Now, there's only a month left, but that's still missing another month. Don't you want him on the court, even if he can't play more than five minutes a game? Don't you want him to get himself back into plane shape, even though they say he's doing drills? At what point are the Pelicans done with Zion Williamson? At one point, are they going to take his original rookie deal and let him go? Is he going to be another rookie flameout? Another top pick? A Greg Oden? Someone who just isn't going to make it? Is Zion Williamson now considered a bust 
Or is he only a bust in the eyes of people who say, I'm comparing him to Ja, who could be a top five player in the NBA currently, but certainly has taken his team to the heights that the Pelicans were expected to ascend to, not the Grizzlies. Or is the front office of the Pelicans saying when Zion is healthy, he is a performing player, an all-star performing player. We just have to get him healthy. One of the toughest things that happens when you're running a team is knowing when to give up on someone who you've invested so much of your time, dollars, marketing dollars, future, because you give them so many more benefits of the doubt. You say no to your coaches and your manager and your scouts and your development people. You say you're wrong, not the player. You say do something different to get that player good because we drafted him first and he's got to be good. We cannot in any, any sense of the word give up on this number one one because if we do, that will be showing our failure. The ego of people who run teams shouldn't shock you, given that you listen to nothing personal, given that I've told you the way I used to be. I still have a healthy ego, but nothing like I had when I was president of a team. I never wanted to give up on a number one pick. And we failed plenty of times. In baseball, you fail way more. It's way more acceptable to fail on a first-round pick than it is in basketball or football. But even in baseball, I did not want to give up on a first-round pick. And the development people were not allowed to give up on a first-round pick even years later without coming to me and the owner first, which is unreal because an eighth-round pick, yeah, you release him, and then I get it. The GM calls me in and says, hey, we released this guy. I'm like, who's that? Oh, eighth-round pick from three years ago? See you later. Not even a factor. But someone like a Zion Williamson? Someone who you expected to run your entire team around, both on and off the court, and they just throw it out there on March 21st. Yeah, he's done for the season. They are despondent beyond repair. DBR in the front office in New Orleans. They're talking to their trainers right now. They're talking to Zion's agent. They're talking to their coaching staff, and they're saying, listen, he better be back for training camp. And I don't just mean because of our team on the court. I mean because of the business we need to do off the court. Because as much as I don't want to fail with a one overall pick, it will never trump the statement that says it all. Come back, Zion. It's just business. See you later, Zion. This is nothing personal.